Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Ariana Prail. We're in for Mina Kim. Our conversations about the January 6th Capitol insurrection continue today. President Biden had strong words for those who are prepared to discard the traditions of our democracy. I will stand in this breach. I will defend this nation. And I will allow no one to place a dagger at the throat of democracy. But what does defending democracy actually look like? We want to hear from you. What are your memories of that day? How does our nation heal and bridge its many divides? We'll have that conversation after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. And I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're your co-hosts today in Fermina Kim. On today's anniversary of the insurrection on January 6, 2021, we remember how the nation watched in disbelief. Trump supporters trampled barricades and stormed the Capitol to stop the certification of President Biden's election. Insurrectionists scaled walls, occupied congressional offices, and took over the Senate floor. Meanwhile, as police officers battled to bring order, Some suffering grievous injuries as a result, staffers and lawmakers sheltered in place, some fearing for their lives. January 6th was a day of violence. It was also a moment of reckoning. And on this anniversary, we ask where our country with its fragile democracy is headed. What are your memories of that day? How does our nation heal and bridge its many divides? It's a question we've been asking and we're going to continue to ask. We want to hear from you this hour. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your comments to forum at kqed.org. We'll hear from a number of voices today. Joining us first is Representative Ro Khanna, U.S. Congressman for California's 17th Congressional District, who was in the Capitol that day. Welcome to Forum. Congressman Khanna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through your experience on January 6th. What do you remember of that day? It was a dreadful day representing the debasement and degradation of American democracy. I mean, I was, went to uh, the Capitol, to my office in the Cannon Building, and around 10 o'clock in the morning, we were told that there were pipe bombs uh, possibly in the building or outside and we ought to evacuate, at which point I uh, went outside uh, the Cannon Building and through the uh, hallways towards the cafeteria and then was going 
towards the Capitol, and I got frantic text messages uh, from my chief of staff and uh, a number of other people saying, don't go to the Capitol. Whatever you do, uh, go back to the Cannon Building. Uh, at that point, the Capitol uh, had already been breached. And so I uh, quickly went back to the Cannon Building, even though they had not uh, taken away the warnings of a, a bomb threat, uh, and went to my office and locked the doors and stayed there till uh, midnight uh, when the uh, election was certified. One of the things that I find appalling is that the people who put those pipe bombs, uh, we, we still haven't caught them. I mean, I don't understand how a year later we, we have not found people who literally put pipe bombs uh, in different parts of the Capitol complex. Alexis Madrigal here. What were you thinking as you entered the House late that night after the insurrection to certify the election and and take those votes? Honestly, it was probably one of the things I'm proudest to have done in uh, my five years in Congress. Uh, I give Speaker Pelosi so much credit uh, that she decided uh, we would prevail, we would move on, that insurrectionists aren't going to disrupt American democracy. Uh, and I walked uh, with pride uh, through the tunnels to the Capitol, to the House floor, uh, to cast that vote and certify President Biden and Vice President Harris as our duly elected president and vice president. And then I went there with gratitude uh, to all the Capitol police officers uh, who were in harm's way, who are in harm's way, frankly, every day. Uh, and uh, just the, for the job they had done to keep us safe. And what was the scene like on the House floor when you returned and the mood and the feeling amongst your colleagues? I uh, think it was one of uh, perseverance, of uh, triumph, that uh, American democracy is stronger, uh, ultimately more resilient, uh, than a band of insurrectionists, that they are not going to uh, disrupt or even significantly delay uh, the functioning of, of, of American democracy. Uh, and so uh, that was something that gave me hope. Now, it's been unfortunate in the subsequent year that that moment of triumph uh, has faded, that feeling has faded in part because we've had so many uh, Republicans try to diminish what happened on January 6th, try to uh, make uh, light of it, uh, try to uh, say that there's no need to investigate it. Uh, and that just is uh, r really sad that we can't agree in this country uh, that you do not go with violence to the nation's capital, that there, that, that is something we have zero tolerance for. So how do you interact and work with colleagues who are downplaying or outright denying that the insurrection happened, people who remain loyal to Donald Trump's version of events, which is a lie that he won the election? Like, how do you work with them? You know, I actually thought I tweeted out Carl Rove, of all people, wrote an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal that I think is worth reading. And he said, look, I, he's not denying that some people may have been there in protest, but the reality is thousands of people were there that were armed, and they scaled the Capitol, and they were there to disrupt democracy and try to kill people. They were yelling they wanted to kill Vice President Pence, and everyone ought to condemn that, Republicans, Democrats, any American. And I appreciate him writing, appreciated him writing that piece, and I wish there were more Republicans like him 
who would speak out. Uh, you know, my job, obviously, is to get things done for my constituency and for the country. And so when there are Republicans on committees uh, that I have to work with to get legislation through, uh, you know, I it, work with them to the best of my ability, knowing that they represent constituencies that uh, and are elected. But it is a very difficult situation where you have uh, a number of people, many people, frankly, in the Congress, who still uh, have not unequivocally condemned what took place on that day. Congressman Khanna, yesterday I spoke with your colleague, Congressman Adam Schiff of Los Angeles, and I asked him what is keeping his faith in our institutions. And I'd like to ask you the same question. What is keeping your faith in our institutions at this stage of everything? We have uh, such a extraordinary tradition. I still believe we are an extraordinary nation. We have uh, the longest tradition of uh, democratic governance and institutions. We have institutions that ultimately worked. Uh, Donald Trump was uh, unable to steal the election. Uh, the Supreme Court, even including people that he had appointed, three of them that he had appointed, uh, none of them tried uh, ultimately to uh, steal uh, the election. Uh, and we're trying to do something in this country that is very, very difficult. Uh, in the history of the world, there has never been a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. People talk about Canada. Canada is over 80 percent white. England is over 80 percent white. Australia is over 80 percent white. We're 60 percent white, non-Hispanic. We have uh, the most diverse nation, uh, in my view, ever conceived, and it's largely an immigrant nation. So it's a difficult project, but I believe our generation will see the success of that. Obama, I think, was the harbinger of a multiracial America uh, that we will uh, see, hopefully, in my lifetime. And so I see this as just part of the struggle, and I believe that there are people like my late colleague John Lewis who had to sacrifice a lot more. Uh, who had to face uh, a lot more hate and anger. Uh, I mean, uh, we're not getting beaten on, on bridges. Uh, we're not uh, being jailed. So uh, this is our time to uh, struggle for American democracy, and our fights and struggles are not as severe as previous generations. Representative Khanna, I mean, we hear from people on the show every time we talk about Republican efforts to make it harder to vote, and even more troublingly, to throw away the longstanding rules about counting votes. And they say, if Republicans are doing all these things, what are Democrats doing? So that's a question for you. What are y'all doing? Well, we're trying to pass the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. There is no higher priority. I have been passionate about Build Back Better. I've been passionate about climate. Let me tell you, the highest priority for every Democrat has to be to pass voting rights. If we don't have in this country the principle that every person, regardless of race, has an equal right to vote, that we do not have a democracy. And uh, I never thought uh, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s that uh, when I would one day have a chance to have an impact on the country, my fight would be voting rights. I thought that was settled in the 1960s. But it's not. You have Republican legislatures basically saying that they can overturn the results of local election boards if they disagree with them. European people being kicked off voting rolls. You have a systematic effort to make it harder for black and brown people to vote because uh, making it harder to register, making it harder to vote absentee. We ought to be passing this Voting Rights Act. And if there are a couple senators who don't want to do it, make them vote every single day. Make them vote no. And 
to have them explain why they are for disenfranchising black and brown people in this country. Uh, I think we have to turn up the temperature, vote every single day uh, until we pass the Voting Rights Act. It's Congressman Kana Rokana, the representative for California's 17th Congressional District, who was in the Capitol on January 6th last year. Thanks so much for joining us, Congressman. Thank you for the opportunity. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. I'm joined by co-host Alexis Madrigal. And we're hearing from you, our listeners. Susan writes, the question is, why are these traitors who attempted and failed to overthrow our national election still walking free? They're getting worse by the day, yet we are pretending that it's time to heal. There is no excuse for letting these traitors continue to foment violence and undermine our democracy. And Pam writes, I've been so heartened to see the increasing coverage of the ongoing threats to our democracy in the last few weeks. I'm concerned that this coverage won't keep up during the course of this very important election year. I'm very worried that the media, including NPR, will revert to just telling the both sides version of the story instead of naming the reality of the threats to democratic elections that are posed on a local, state, and federal level. And we're also getting some memories of that day. Andrew writes, I was picking up my daughter in San Francisco and driving back north to Sonoma. It was such an alarming event, and I wasn't even sure what I was feeling besides sadness for our country. On our drives, we usually alternate our song choices in the car, and the song that felt most appropriate to me to choose was Peter, Paul, and Mary singing, If I Had a Hammer. Hearing my sweet seven-year-old belt out the words, If I had a bell, I'd ring out danger, I'd ring out warning, I'd ring out love to my brothers and my sisters all over this land, made me tear up then and still does. Explaining the events of that day to her was something I was at a complete loss to do. Thank you all for sharing. You, reminder that you can send us your comments form at kqed.org or give us a call at 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. And I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I remember clearly the, the sound of the, the battering ram up against the door. I remember seeing members removing their congressional pins so as not to be recognized. And I remember some harsh words being spoken between the two sides. It's a tough night. I hope people will remember with some solemnity the fragility of democracy. Uh, At the same time, I hope people remember 
the courage and resiliency of the people who are here. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined by co-host Ariana Prail. That was Maryland Congress member Jamie Raskin recalling the events of that day. We are, of course, talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with a variety of guests, as well as with you. And we'd like to add Ed from Palo Alto into the conversation. Welcome, Ed. Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I actually come from a country that went through a revolution uh, in the Middle East. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes I feel guilty that I'm not doing enough, even though I'm involved, even though I, I vote, even though I <clears throat> contribute. And and um, if you think that um, Voting Rights Act, or if you think Jim Crow isn't going to come back, think again. If you think that democracy is not in danger, that's exactly what we were thinking. Okay? It just lifts the way so quickly. It was amazing. You have to be involved. Look, we had our own version of Fox News. And, and the thing that I want to leave you with is, is also Joe Biden and Jill Biden, these are decent people. They don't have to be doing this. They're decent people. They're not grifters. They're not con artists. They're not tax evaders. They could be putting their foot up. She is a, a tenured professor. She gets paid to think. And they took on the hardest job in the world because they care about this country. They're not a bunch of grifters and thieves and, 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 and con artists. Well, thank hey, you Ed, for sharing. Quick, quick follow-up for you, actually. What, what do you wish you'd done back where in your home country? Like, at the time, what do you wish you would have done to try and stop the slide out of democracy? To be honest with you, I was, I was a kid. I, was, I think I was 15, 16. My, my parents got, I was in a, in a very, very special school for bright kids. So my parents got me out of the country about two years before the revolution happened. They saw it happening. So they got, got me out. But if, but if I was older, even if at, at that age, I wish I had talked to more people. I wish I had told them, look, this is dangerous. I, I, my my brother-in-law to this day says, I can't believe it happened. I can't believe it happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, hey. and, and the funny thing about it is, and I want you, this is really important. Everybody knew what was right, but everybody thought it was going to be okay, and it mm-hmm. wasn't. Hey, thank you, Ed from Palo Alto. Really appreciate you, uh, you sharing your experience with us. Thank you very much. And joining us now is David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, Welcome to Forum, David Graham. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious, what do you make of today's remembrances? It's um, it's such a strange day, and I, I think it's kind of depressing. You know, in some ways, uh, it felt like the gravity of what happened was very clear to a lot of people uh, on that day and in the days afterward. Um, and from a distance, it you know you you just see so much disagreement and dispute and. Um, and uh, you know we can't even reach a consensus about the things that we saw in person or on television or, or, or in images. Um, so I think it's a kind of bleak day. Yeah. 
You know, today, Mitch McConnell called January 6th a dark day for Congress and our country in which the Capitol was stormed by criminals who brutalized police officers and used force to try to stop Congress from doing its job. But then he also denounced the recognition of the day as a partisan attempt to advance Democrats' uh, policy goals. How do you think Republicans are are dealing with this day in which you know many of their colleagues don't look very good? Well, I, I mean, I think it tells us something that McConnell didn't make those comments from Washington. He made them from Georgia, where he's attending Johnny Isaacson's funeral. We don't have there are barely any Republicans in Washington for for these events, and I think that reflects their their nervousness about it. You know, on the one hand, I think there remain a lot of Republicans who are really uncomfortable with what happened and disapprove of it privately, but they also um, both understand the political stakes, which are that they can't really say that publicly uh, or, or they, their careers are at risk of ending, and they don't have the political courage to take that uh, take that leap. And so you see them doing what they can to, to sort of stay away from it, to say as little po- as possible, or in McConnell's case, to say something that's strictly true. I mean, it was an attack and all those things are true, but you can't talk about that attack without understanding that it was a partisan attack in the first place. Mm-hmm. How is all of this day of remembrance, how's January 6th playing in kind of the alternative universe of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Getz and kind of that wing of the Republican Party? Well, there's a couple of things going on. One is that you have these people celebrating it as a sort of heroic occasion, you know, a, a time when in their eyes, American patriots stood up for what was right. Uh, they tried to keep an election from being stolen and they didn't succeed, but the battle goes on. So that's one side of it. The other thing you see, in, which I think is interesting, when you look at opinion polls, it's actually Republicans who are much more concerned about the risk to democracy than Democrats um, really across the board. And I, I think that reflects uh, how the big lie has sunk in. You have a lot of Republicans who believe that the election was stolen uh, and they believe that that something, you know, there was fraud. And that isn't true. But if you believe that, um, I guess it's, it's understandable that you would think that there is a crisis of democracy. But it's troubling to me that people who... Uh, believe the lie are more worried about the crisis of democracy than people who uh, who understand that there was an attack on democracy and it was conducted by Trump's supporters. We're also joined by Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color. Welcome back to Forum, Amy Allison. Thanks for having me. So what are the questions and reflections weighing on your mind on this anniversary? You know, thinking back a year ago, uh, I, like a a lot of women of color who had worked in those battleground states, including Georgia um, and Arizona and others, uh, we had uh, fought a tremendous battle just to get every vote counted in the middle of the pandemic and in the face of voter suppression. So to see uh, uh, people, uh, insurrectionists, united under a banner uh, and a philosophy of white supremacy storming the Capitol uh, was confirmation of the thing we've been saying for years, the growing danger. I mean, you know, I I work with uh, women across the country who had sounded the alarm uh, early, who had worked fervently on the ground uh, to expand democracy in the face of all of this and who had been telling the truth. And, you know, my reflection is, you know, you know, every generation has the moment that defines them. Uh, for baby boomers, it's probably the assassination of, of Kennedy. For, for Gen X, I know that it was uh, 9-11 attacks. And I, I think uh, the insurrection is storming the, the, the Congress a year ago, defined is defining us as a country. 
and our response to that, the urgency to that, not just for women of color who we we work with across the country, but for, for, for Americans is like, there's a bright line now. The question is, are you pro-democracy or anti-democracy? It's, it's that simple. Are you Are you for justice or opposed to it? And I think in the last year, it's been very clear that uh, the the dangers of those who are anti-democracy and the rise of fascism is greater than ever. And that's where uh, we we see an increase of the fear and we see people uh, wondering what we can do, but we also see a changing face of who the patriot is. I think someone said earlier, uh, you know, who, who gets to claim uh, the face of, uh, or what an American patriot is. And, and I, I think of people like, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Congresswoman Pramila Jarapal, Congresswoman um, uh, Okasha Cortez, who who uh, were there and who spoke the truth, and who uh, faced that danger with tremendous courage. I think of the people on the ground who are still to this day fighting for the right to to vote despite all this. So the urgency is here, um, the fear is here, but also there's a tremendous capacity for us regardless of our race or gender, to, to come together to be pro-democracy. And I think that's, the, uh, that's my uh, biggest hope in this moment. Yesterday, I spoke with Vox senior correspondent Zach Beecham, and one of his recent stories was on the need for a pro-democracy movement that currently doesn't exist in the U.S. And he adds that it doesn't appear Americans care that much. Amy Allison, how do you make people care about the future of democracy, care about the collective us, essentially? Listen, uh, we're never going to get 100% of everyone, especially in this time, but there are a lot of us, there are millions of us listening right now to this show that believe in democracy, who do not take it for granted and understand the urgency of coming together to figure out how we can scale the, 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 the walls that have separated us through social media and, and other things and find common cause. And I think these kind of movements, when you look at other countries, start with a committed core of people. It's not a political conversation about parties. It's not an electoral conversation about someone getting elected or reelected. It's a deeper conversation about who we are and what we want for our country. The more that we can have a conversation about our values, loving each other, um, loving our own and others, and making justice a law of the land, and democracy as a fundamental value, the more we can articulate that uh, and, and create a center of gravity for people, the more we'll find our people that will be part of a pro-democracy movement. Um, are we going to get everyone to care about it? You know, I, I think that's too high of a bar. Can we unite millions of Americans under a pro-democracy banner? It's possible. But we can't wait. We can't act like uh, this, uh, this danger that January 6th represents is something far away. It's, it's immediate, it's urgent. And so the, the response to it, sure, we need to hold everyone accountable who stormed the Capitol and we need to do the deeper work uh, to unite people, give people the language, give people an opportunity to do that so that we can build the pro-democracy movement we need here in the United States. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. I'm Ariana Prail, joined by co-host Alexis Madrigal. We have David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, with us, along with Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color. And you, our listeners, of course, 
What are your memories of that day? How can our nation bridge its many divides, in your opinion? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. One last uh, question for you, or not one last, but for me for this moment, Amy Allison. to kind of pick up on the thread you were starting on. We also spoke with Kelly Carter Jackson yesterday, who was making a point about how the right is shifting the narrative and the big lie is sounding a lot like the lost cause. And in 50 years time, you know, will there be a statue of a shaman in city squares? In other words, who defines memory here and how do we make sure that the truth is told and believed? What are your thoughts on that? It's a it's such a good point because um, in some ways that divine in line between those who believe in democracy and freedom and those who don't, uh, those who believe in racial justice and those who don't, were were defined for this country and fought over during the Civil War. And those things were not settled as a country. So I believe it should be uh, a national focus for us to elevate uh, those who believe in racial justice, believe in a multiracial democracy, a pro-democracy. There should be an explicit attempt nationally uh, to highlight those heroes of democracy and the efforts, the language, uh, the writing that supports that. I don't think that we can um, allow uh, the next 50 years to be defined by those who would tear the very ideals down. Um, sure, we haven't reached them all, but we ha- we hold those ideals uh, as uh, a guiding a guiding light for us in terms of our government and our way of our way of life and those who would tear it down should not be able to define, culturally define uh, the language and the imagery um, of who matters in this country and who's defining the future. We do, uh, we do. Uh, it's not just women of color, it's, it's, uh, it's men and, and uh, women of all genders and, and uh, uh, races that come together under those common uh, beliefs. And I, I think that should be, and that is as important as us holding those accountable for last year is looking forward to defining what the future of the country is and having the practical, concrete evidence of what what matters to us collectively as a country. Co-host Alexis Madrigal here, and I want to add in Joe from San Francisco into the conversation. Hi, yeah. Um, great conversation, great topic. Uh, I've agreed with everything that has been said, but it seems like we're missing the big elephant in the room here, which is we can't have a common sense of what all these ideals are if we're having complete different sources of information and some of it is true, some of it is not true, and there's no way of regulating or controlling that. So it seems like we need to pay a little bit more attention to uh, the laws. I don't know if criminalizing is the idea, but, but something that holds people accountable for disinformation and misinformation, maybe higher fines or making it financially a disincentive to to say things that are blatantly untrue so that at least we're not going to solve the whole problem but at least we can start chipping away at these ideas or these conspiracy theories and things that are completely untrue being just spread across the whole country completely unchecked i mean all these people that think the election was stolen they were told this by some media, and there were no consequences for these these things to happen. So yeah. I think one of the things that we need to go is go to the source and have at least start by having 
similar facts shared across the country. I mean, we had, we used to have, I don't know how. how yeah, no, I think we'd all. Hey, Joe, uh, let me, I just want to ask David Graham, Atlantic staff writer, about how do you see the information landscape right now? And we, it seems like actually it continues to get worse for our entire careers in, in media. It seems like it's gotten worse. How do we, how do we turn things around if you think it's possible? <laughs> that, that's a, that's a tough question. You're putting me on the spot. Um, I think it's really hard. I mean, as a journalist, I am sort of uh, reflexively knee-jerk, nervous about anything that sounds like restricting speech. Um, I also agree that misinformation is a real problem, um, and and I don't. I agree it's getting worse, and I'm not sure you know what the solution to that is. We've done things like you know Trump is banned from Twitter, um, and he's banned from Facebook, but we still see that he has a, a large footprint. He gets a lot of influence. It's just more siloed. So. You know, he's speaking to his supporters and they're hearing it. And the rest of us may not be hearing it so much, but it's still out there and it's still a, a powerful force. Um, so it's a difficult question to know what to do with that. You know, lying is constitutionally protected um, and, and Trump seems um, eager to exercise that constitutional right. Well, and I want to also acknowledge that, you know, journalism outfits like The Atlantic, like KQED and NPR, we we also face challenges to the way that we have traditionally done things. I mean, do you think our journalism models can actually deal with this reality where there are anti-democratic forces on the field? Are we prepared for that? I don't think we're prepared for it. And it's something that I feel like I'm grappling with every day. Um, you know, it's very hard to talk about the seriousness of the threats to democracy that we face without immediately uh, turning off the people who don't buy into it. Um, and, and I worry about sort of speaking into an echo chamber of people who already agree with that. Um, but I also don't think that you can sort of soft pedal these things. So yeah. it's a difficult balance to strike. We're talking about the one year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Joining us now are David Graham, staff writer with The Atlantic, and Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Ariana Prail. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. At some point, the crowd breached the line officers worked so hard to maintain. Civil disturbance units began to redeploy to keep rioters from accessing other areas of the building. I proceeded to the rotunda where I noticed a heavy smoke-like residue and smelled what I believed to be military-grade CS gas, a familiar smell. It was mixed with fire extinguisher spray deployed by rioters. 
The rioters continued to deploy CS into the rotunda. Officers received a lot of gas exposure, which is worse inside the building than outside because there's nowhere for it to go. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, and I'm joined by co-host Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color. And we just heard the voice of Capitol Police Officer Carnesha Mendoza testifying before Congress in February about her experiences protecting the Capitol during the riots. And we're also adding a third voice to our conversation now, Hakeem Jefferson, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. Welcome to Forum, Hakeem Jefferson. Thank you so much for having me. So many people have talked about January 6th as a day of reckoning. You call it out, you call it a day of racial reckoning, but not in the way of forward progress, but of backwards progress. Can you explain your point of view on that? Yeah, so for me, as I watched uh, the insurrection on TV, I was sitting at my desk uh, here at my apartment where I'm sitting right now, and I had just finished the call, and I looked over to the TV and saw a mob of angry white Americans storming the Capitol, breaching uh, barriers that had been put in place. And it was clear to me uh, that this was a moment of racial reckoning, that it was a backlash to uh, what these folks perceived to be the influence of the Black vote and a multiracial democracy, a democracy that had voted for Joe Biden and defeated uh, Donald Trump, this multiracial coalition. And so for me, as we reflect on this moment, it's important that we not disconnect it from a history of racial violence and a history of racial backlash that always meets moments of perceived racial progress. And so I think it's important as we as we think about what motivated uh, the insurrectionists on January 6th to not forget these concerns about a perceived loss of status that many white Americans uh, are feeling at this very moment that's stoked by elites like Donald Trump. Hakeem Alexis Madrigal here, co-host. Uh, polling data and research you know, into people who are at the Capitol on January 6th, it kind of all points in the same direction that you know many of these people, even if they're not dyed-in-the-wool, skinhead-style white supremacists, and at the very least, they're motivated in part by intense white racial anxiety my question is, what can we say about what it would take to move these people away from violence and anger, even if it's just enough to move them away from outright support for fascism? Well, I think here is the important role that political elites play in this narrative. Uh, the, the, these anxieties are stoked by political elites who find it politically advantageous. Uh, to stoke feelings of racial resentment, uh, to, to tell white Americans that they're losing their country, that they should fight to get their country back. We'll recall in Charlottesville these uh, chants of Jews will not replace us. Uh, to the extent that political elites uh, can, can temper their rhetoric, can abandon this language of replacement, I think it's there where we have the greatest hope for moving some members of the mass public away from these extreme poles, where they see any gain for another 
uh, racial or ethnic group as a loss to their own group. Uh, so long as political elites engage in that kind of rhetoric, I think we will see these kinds of extreme factions uh, take hold. And so for me, the hope really lies in uh, members of the Republican Party, Republican elites, uh, really having a moment of reckoning on their own where they realize that they're stoking a really dangerous element of the American population and giving rise to the kind of violence that we saw on January the 6th. But I don't see any, I don't see any movement in that direction. And I think that's what really make us all quite nervous. Ariana Prail here. Listener Amy writes, I worry, like the caller who left a country in the Middle East, that too many people think everything will be okay. I am worried that so many of my friends would rather put their heads in the sand, look at pictures of puppies, and pretend like everything is okay. Yes, we're tired, but we need to know what's happening. Call a lie a lie. We need the truth now more than ever. I'd like to get um, all our guests' comments on this, because I think this is one of those underlying questions. But Hakeem Jefferson, what are your reactions to that first? I couldn't agree more, I think, put simply. Uh, I made this argument in a piece at the San Francisco Chronicle uh, just today, that it can, in fact, get worse. And the, and the goal, the aim in making uh, this point is not, to, is not to have us all go crazy, but it's to say that in this moment, we should be alarmed. American democracy really does hang in the balance, and we can imagine quite readily uh, the possibility of living in, a, in an authoritarian state where one party rules, as I note in this piece, uh, not by public will, but by force, sometimes the kind of violent force of the like that we saw on January the 6th, but also by a kind of corrupting of political institutions and political rules. And that's what we see in attacks on, on the right to vote. And so I agree with the caller that now is not the time to bury our heads in the sand. We should all use whatever power and platforms we have and networks that we have to really make the case uh, that Congress and other political elites should expand access to the franchise, uh, implement democracy enhancing policies and uh, uh, quite immediately pass uh, voting rights legislation. And so I agree with the caller and have been making this case as much as, as much as I can every place I can. Amy Allison, founder of She the People, what are your thoughts and reactions to that comment? Well, I agree with uh, Professor Jefferson. Look, we, we are at a moment where um, we need to have public testimony, particularly centered on those who are typically marginalized I mean, women of color um, in, in, in all of our uh, diversity represent that. Um, uh, 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 black women, immigrant women, indigenous women, Asian American women um, comprise those who are, uh, have suffered under the cruel policies and practices of the country and who are in a best position to tell the truth. I think this is the kind of thing where uh, brave truths can lead to brave actions. I mean, part of the reason that we need to support those who come from uh, communities who aren't typically in politics is the willingness uh, to, to be truth tellers and to have brave action. I mean, look, uh, if we look at the last year, we should have had uh, legislation passed to protect voting rights, uh, to make sure that people who have been marginalized and left out of the political process uh, for those who uh, represent an expansion and <clears throat> evolution of democracy, 
democracy uh, to be included. And yet we haven't because uh, I believe the lack of courage uh, to uh, for those who are in power uh, to take on the, the, the filibuster and make uh, the votes that would make that difference. So we do need the truth telling. And I don't think people should uh, worry as much that a twisted version um, of reality that's being you know, uh, promulgated by the political elites that Hakeem Jefferson talked about or uh, people who are in office or people who uh, stormed the Capitol a year ago. I, I think we need to uh, expand and elevate uh, our truth, our brave truths, and then couple that with brave actions. Lexus Madrigal here wanted to add BJ from Oakland into the conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm continue to be frustrated by what seems to me to be the great lament of the left as to what's going on in this country uh, about the the threat to democracy. We talk to each other, um, and the people on the other side pay no attention to what we're saying when we keep lamenting what's going on. Uh, They are in a different silo, so to speak. And what's frustrating to me is I hear no plans about uh, of what to do about that, of these people didn't didn't we didn't come to have this intense, you know, uh, partisanship. It wasn't created out of thin air or it's not genetic. It's it results from the continued process that's that the right has become very good at. I mean, all you have to do is turn on Fox News and you will hear uh, this process of con- of creating and magnifying despair and converting it into rage mediated by insults that denigrate the left and make any sort of attitude that the right has toward the left acceptable. It's acceptable to attack the Capitol and violently attack the Capitol if you believe the other side is everything that you hear they are on Fox News and from the late Rush Limbaugh and from Steve Bannon. And I don't hear what what. I don't hear a plan for dealing with this yeah. the, this fire hose of misinformation and lies and conspiracy theories on the right. We have to figure BJ, out a I way to ask, get uh, into their silos. Yeah. We have to get into their silos with a message that works with them. And I don't hear I don't hear that at all. Yeah. BJ from Oakland, thank you for that. David Graham, I w- want to ask. I mean, The Atlantic is a publication that gets things into the right at least a little bit. How, how do you see this problem of moving real facts into these silos of uh, tornadoes, really, of misinformation? I mean, I think the most important thing is to keep to the real facts. You know, that that is the, the, the first step. And if you're not doing that, you can't get any further. Uh, my sense is that it's harder for um, my pieces to reach right-leaning readers than it was five years ago. Um, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of data to support that, but I just see the sorts of emails I get, and they're not from the same kind of people, and they're not people who are willing to debate. Um, you know, I we watched in the presidential campaign Joe Biden really attempt to sort of speak to all Americans and, and to avoid a sort of divisive approach, and I think even he has started to abandon that. His speech today, which was very strong, you know, I thought it was pitched largely at Biden voters. He said, 
when Trump says the real insurrection was November 3rd, is that what you felt like when you went to cast your vote on November 3rd? That's not aiming at Republicans. Uh, and if even Joe Biden uh, seems to be despairing of, of reaching a wider swath of Americans, um, I think that's a pretty bleak sign about the, you know, the, the hopes for doing that. BJ is right. I mean, it's a real problem. Um, I have I've heard many conversations about it, but I haven't heard a lot of solutions. Yeah. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal here with Ariana Prail. We're in for Mina Kim. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. We're joined by David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color, as well as Hakeem Jefferson, assistant professor of political science at Stanford University. You know, David Graham, I wanted to ask you one more question. One thing we hear a lot in the media from our, our listeners and our readers is you have to call a lie a lie. Do you think that calling a lie a lie is enough? Like, does that does that actually change people's minds when we say this is a lie? I don't know if it changes minds, and it may be just that we took too long to do that, uh, you know, the media as a whole. There are certainly exceptions to that. But, you know, if you go back to 2015 and 2016, you saw people really hesitating to do that with Trump um, and hesitating to sort of, you know, use judgment and, and use a filter when they were airing things that he said. Uh, and that allowed him to get a toehold that um, he has never let go of. So I think it's important to call lies lies. Um, but if we are siloed, um, and if we're only speaking to people who, do, who agree with us, that doesn't get very far. And if we call, thing, call these things a lie and, and people are so immersed in the narrative that they, um, they believe that they are true, um, calling it a lie doesn't get very far with them either. Ariana Prail here. Listener Wendy writes, being in a constant state of alarm without knowing what to do to stop fascism is not a recipe for success. We need to know what to do aside from voting to stop this before it's too late. Hakeem Jefferson, I know that you said that we're in the 11th hour and vital signs of democracy are weak. What does the patient need? What are, you know, aside from voting as uh, Wendy writes, you know, what do we do to stop it before it's too late? Yeah, I wish I had the right answer. I, I know. I, I guess I just asked I, you to I, solve the problem I, of the world I, I, right I, there. I, I would, I would, I would tell Wendy. Uh, but in my in my everyday job, I spend a lot of time thinking about why people believe what they believe about the world. I spend a lot of time thinking about people's psychologies and how how they arrive at their politics. But when it comes to issues of democracy, I'm an institutionalist. I believe that we should really demand that members of Congress use the power of the institution to protect the right to vote, to hold accountable those who, uh, who, who stormed the Capitol, to make it such that it doesn't happen again. And so I think, Wendy, what we should spend our time doing is really holding political elites' feet to the fire. Democrats currently hold the House, uh, the Senate, and the presidency, it takes some political courage, some matter of political will uh, to do the things that will protect and enhance and strengthen American democracy. But that's where I think our energies ought to be placed right now. They should be placed in really encouraging our political elites to do the right thing and to protect democracy uh, no matter what it takes. And that's uh, where I'm spending my energies. Amy Allison, if Republicans really do create the conditions to take power in 2024, regardless of the election's outcome, 
we've talked a lot about fighting for democracy, but like if that happens, what what actually are Americans who believe in democracy supposed to do at that point? Uh, well, I, first of all, I should say that's a real danger. And if that happens, given the commitments of the Republican Party, it's the end of the American democratic experiment. And that could come um, very soon, and it's really scary. But before then, to the point of the the the, the person who uh, emailed in about wanting to know what to do, um, I think the Democrats have been reticent to exercise the power that they had that they that we currently hold um, in order to hold the feet feet to the fire the the people in office, the senators and the the Congress members who supported. Uh, the January 6th insurrection, who continue to give it uh, validity and strength and to continue to perpetuate that lie. And the focus should be on holding them accountable, throwing a book at them, uh, as well as the people who actually were on the ground, uh, you know, fighting Capitol Police. And we need to see that we're going to be exercising power to defend what we currently have, as well as pass the voting rights legislation and make sure that um, in 22, we hold the line. I mean, look, uh, I said that what ails our country is bigger than politics, but the fact of the matter is, this is a big election year. Uh, the balance of power in the Senate and the House is, is, is at stake. If, if people in Georgia and Florida and Texas and North Carolina, and even here in California, have the right to vote, uh, and we defend that, we could work on expanding it for 24. The biggest enemy of democracy is cynicism, and nihilism, and let us not go there. We still have a lot of work to do and a lot of space in which to operate. We've been talking about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with Amy Allison, founder of She the People, Hakeem Jefferson, assistant professor of political science at Stanford University, and David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Join us tomorrow for another hour of Forum. Today's show is produced by Judy Campbell, Susan Britton, Dan Zoll, Caroline Smith, Blanca Torres, Grace One. Our engineer was Danny Bringer. Our intern is Jennifer Eng. And Ethan Tobin Lindsay is our executive editor. Thanks to our listeners for joining us as well. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.